Thank you, everyone involved with that wonderful piece of music. Take your Bible, turn to the book of James. James, in the back of your Bible, a very practical book. In fact, the title of our series, as we've been studying this book given to us in God's Word, is James, Practical Christian Living. Hebrews, James. James in your New Testament there. Make our way into the second chapter of James. I wonder uh, today if we were to be sitting here in our regular service and in the back walked the governor of South Carolina with his Secret Service agents. I don't know, do they have Secret Service on the state level? It just occurred to me, probably not. Maybe they do. And, and he were to walk in here, I wonder how, how many in our church might respond. How would you treat him? What would you do to make sure that he has a, um, a good experience here at our church? How would you treat him differently than someone else who would walk in, uh, anyone else who'd walk in the door? I know there's a tendency, a huge problem in the Christian church. Uh, it's just a problem that's with all humanity, really. It's a problem that exists in our church and exists in our churches and exists with people. It's a broad problem that Christians have a tendency, all people have a tendency to see others for how they might benefit me personally. We look at other people from a perspective of how might this person benefit me. When they see somebody enter a church, rather than seeing them as a soul, we might think, well, how would this person being a part of our church make us look in this community? Can you imagine if the governor joined our church, how much clout and status it would give our church? If you could imagine how significant it would be to our neighbors, you would say, hey, you know, you should come to our church. Our, the governor of our, of our state goes to our church. You should come. You think about it. It would be a very alluring and a very tempting line of thinking. How might this association with this person make me feel personally better? I go to a kind of church where the governor would go. It might make me feel good about my choice of church. We start thinking of our importance of worth in a very worldly way. And let me just be very clear, this kind of thinking dishonors God. If we, if we approach people this way, especially in the context of worship, if we see people as we, should, we must see people as God sees them, and we must see them with the respect that they deserve and the respect that God expects of us, and not how they might benefit us personally, because showing partiality is a dead end. It doesn't help us. It doesn't go anywhere. In fact, if we had to think of a, a main idea here is that God's priorities, not our priorities, should define how we do ministry in church. It's, it's, we have to strip away our own priorities. Look at chapter 2. We see the context. If you go back to chapter 1, we see true religion and undefiled, pure and undefiled religion before God, he says in verse 27, is to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. We are to be doers of the word and not just hearers. We must be living out our religious truth that God has given us in his word. As you look at God's word and the instructions surrounding the issue of treating people with partiality. This is a very pointed message, a very specific idea, a very specific point. I'm going to ask three basic questions. The first question we're going to ask is, when we are partial, what are we trying to gain? As we go into God's Word, let's ask for His wisdom and for Him to show us in our heart where we might, we might say, oh, I'm not partial, but I want you to really examine your heart today and see what God would have us. His Word is given to address our issues. And so today, as we address our issues from God's Word, let's see where we need to have His grace 
in order to continue to walk with him. Father, I pray your blessings on the service. I pray your blessings on our hearts. And Lord, I pray for those um, in Israel right now going through this terrible war. I pray your protection on many lives. I pray that you would bring a quick end uh, to the, the carnage we've seen. And Father, I pray that your justice would prevail. And I pray that you give wisdom to our leaders and government officials who need to be making decisions. And I pray, God, that you would uh, have a, a, your way with us during this time, that we would see how quickly life can change, how quickly life can uh, to be turned upside down. And may we, Lord, submit ourselves wholly to you and through your wisdom and your word, live a life that's pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen. First question is this, what are we trying to gain? If you were to be involved in the sin of partiality, what are you trying to gain? Look at me in verse 1. He says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Very simply, there is a command against partiality. This is the audience he's been talking to the whole time. He says, my brethren, my beloved brethren, the believers in the church, I'm talking to you believers, I'm talking to you Christians, and he says, don't hold this faith. In other words, when you worship God, in the context of worship, he's really honing in on how we do religion. When you are doing religion, if I can use that in the proper context, in the context of living a devout life to God, like when you are walking with God, when you're worshiping God, do not hold the faith in a way that shows partiality because there's a temptation whenever we're involved in worship for the focus to shift away from God and towards people. We start looking at people. We think how this might appear to people, how people might like this or not like this. So we start thinking through the lens of people. Notice the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the one who has authority. And because Jesus Christ is the Lord, He's the one we come here to worship. It's called the Lord's Day. The day, Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's not your day. It's not my day. We're not here to worship a person uh, like me. We're not here to, to, to just do, go through the, uh, the, the, the routines of religion. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back. We're here to worship Christ. And because we're here and He is the King, the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, He is worthy of glory, He is glorious, how can we possibly worship God and hold this faith while at the same time exercising partiality towards people? He, he's directly confronting this. In fact, the word partiality comes from a Greek word that literally means to receive the face. It has the idea to, to be attracted to something, to, to turn and receive someone. It's to make judgments and distinctions based on the external considerations, not on the internal. Physical appearance, social status, even skin color can be a way in which we show partiality towards others. Our worship must absolutely be free from the sin of partiality. But how does partiality demonstrate itself? There's the expression of partiality in verses 2 and 3. Read with me. He says, for if, and here's the, here's the scenario he outlines, okay, if, There should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel. And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Notice that James offers an imaginary scenario. Maybe it's not so imaginary. but In my mind, it's probably imaginary in the case that he's presenting a scenario in which two people are visitors of a church, are guests of a church. They walk in. We know they're guests because they're identified by their external appearances. They're not identified by name. Further, they're, they're, they're ushered around. They're, they're told where to sit. <clears throat> and if you've been anywhere near a Baptist church, you know that if you've been here more than three times, you've got a seat. Like, you know where you're sitting. 
And so I'm, I'm, I'm halfway joking here, but in all reality, this is someone who's coming in and looking to be seated, looking to find a place to sit, looking to be accepted into the congregation. The two guests who enter there are seated. And the first man enters, he dressed in the attire that would signal him as well off. He's got, it says here, gold rings and fine apparel. I, I don't know if he's showing off or if that's just how he dresses every day. Whatever the case, he's coming in with the intent of impressing perhaps, but the people definitely are impressed. Regardless of what his attitude is when he walks in the door, the people in the church look at this man and say, oh, that guy's rich. That guy's got money. He's got fine apparel. We have a contrast. Right behind him, perhaps, the second man enters, and this man enters, he's filthy clothes. He, he doesn't have the same fine apparel. And, and, they, and people look at him and they say, you know what, this guy with the, with the wealth, he would be an asset to our church. The poor man in the filthy clothes, he's going to be a drain on our resources. Because we have to take care of him, probably. Is that what he's looking for? Plus, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't smell very good. Maybe he doesn't look very good. Notice the response. The clothing and their wealth trigger two responses. The first of the rich man is to, the Bible says, pay attention to him and give him honor. To give attention just means to gaze upon, to be fixated on, to take special consideration of, to show special respect for. It's just related to the word for seeing him. They recognize him, they notice him, and they, they look upon him, and they are, they are definitely paying him attention. But the, the response to the poor man is the opposite. It's to disregard him. They don't look upon him. There's no mention here of paying special attention to him. They don't stare at him. In fact, they, they disregard him. They, the idea here is that the church turns away from the poor man. The church sees the poor man walk in, and they don't, they don't really want anything to do with him. They, they say, look, if we have to tell you where to sit, why don't you just stand over there? Standing room, you know, in the back somewhere. Or sit at my footstool. The idea is just find a seat somewhere, um, probably where my feet are. It's very rude and very unkind. But it would have been completely understandable in this, cult, in this cultural context to treat people like this. Oh, you know, you, you don't belong here. You don't, you don't really matter to us. And this is an expression of partiality. This is how it looks. It looks when you, when you recognize one person and you see their value to you, or you see their disvalue to you, and you make distinctions based on that decision, that judgment you've made. So what are the motives behind partiality? Look at verse 4. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And here's the spiritual autopsy that pries open our heart and shows us what's going on. He says, you have two guests treated differently, and in this you're judging with evil thoughts. These evil thoughts are incompatible with Christian theology and Christian teaching because you approved of one, you disapproved the other based on their physical appearance. That's not how God looks at things. I want you to notice the second thing there. He says, show impartiality among yourselves. I find this fascinating that it's likely he's insinuating that both of these men who come in are part of the congregation and that they are believers, and that by distinguishing, they're, de- they're denigrating one believer and exalting another. Look here, he says that, that you, by looking on others, have become judges with evil thoughts. When Christ, when God deals with people, how does he look at them? In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, the heart. In Proverbs 16:2, it says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. God can see your heart. Even, more, even better than you can. 
You might think that your motives are right, but God sees your heart. Jeremiah 11 says, but O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. Here he's speaking and asking God to show, show, uh, show his righteous judgment. To make snap judgments about people based on their appearance is wrong, specifically to dishonor and, and to honor. Because you assumed you knew who was blessed by God by that honor, perhaps. In the Old Testament, or in the New Testament church, uh, in the Old Testament culture, let me put it this way, the Jewish culture, it was very much an idea that God showed His blessing by giving material wealth. Look look, look at the uh, the patriarchs. All of them were very wealthy men. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job was wealthy, Uh, David was wealthy, Solomon his wealth. The idea that God shows his blessing by blessing with wealth was a very common idea. So if someone came into your church and was wealthy, you assume God had blessed them. They must be doing a good job. If someone was poor, well, God must not be blessing them. This was, this was an assumption that was made by this early church, perhaps, or by, especially by a lot of the Jews in the early church. But James points out this partiality gives room to evil thoughts in your mind. And I believe it's undeniable that he's, he's dealing with their self-promotion, their idea of seeing the other as a way of benefiting themselves today. So let me, see, let me just explain how this sometimes works in the Christian church. Sometimes Christians do the same thing with a Christian uh, celebrity in Hollywood or in Nashville. So an NFL player gets saved. What do we do? We roll out the red carpet. We have them teach a class. We have them speak at a conference. A pop star makes a public profession of faith. We put them in front of everyone to preach. Why do we do that? What are we thinking? A lot of you remember a, um, a football player by the name of Reggie White. Reggie White was called the minister of defense because he was a minister of the gospel. He would often preach about Jesus as a football player. People, in fact, I remember watching his sermons. He showed up in Rock Hill one time as a guest speaker, preached at the Winter Coliseum. He often talked about how God told him to make particular moves in his career, which should have made anyone a little bit nervous how he spoke about that. He died at age 43 of a heart attack. Reggie, he's no longer with us. Towards the end of his life, he had a change in his thinking. He said, quote, when I look back at my life, there are a lot of things I said God said. I realize he didn't say nothing. It was Reggie wanted to do. I do feel the Father gave me some signals, but you won't hear me anymore saying God spoke to me about something unless I read something in Scripture and I know. He said, most people who wanted me to speak at their churches only asked me to speak because I played football, not because I was this great religious guy or this theologian. I got caught up in some of that until I got older and got sick of it. I've been a preacher for 21 years, preaching what somebody else wrote or what I heard somebody else say. I was not a student of Scripture. I came to the realization I'd become more of a motivational speaker than a teacher of the Word. An NFL player got put up in places where he should not have been preaching God's Word. He didn't know. He got put up by people who wanted to be approved by the world. I'm convinced this attitude is pervasive in our culture today. It's pervasive in churches. Somebody gets saved, we say, oh, great, now they'll listen to us. Oh, great, a famous person, now come to Christ. Let's put him up in front of everybody and have him preach. I'm not opposed to people giving their testimonies, but you see the danger. You see the danger, and I think this is the exact same mindset that James is addressing right here by saying that when you see someone, how many pastors, think about how many ministers thrust someone like Mr. White on the stage, put him in position of high priority because we think he will bring a kind of confirmation to our ministry. 
That, that if this kind of person will be saved, that, then, then man, that, that really means we're doing the Lord's work. In our day, we say, see, we have a football player in our church. In James's day, see, we have a rich man in our church. What are we thinking? What are we trying to gain? Second question is, who are we trying to impress? <clears throat> who are we trying to impress? Because God sees beyond what we see. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He says, says, you've got this all backwards. Listen, he says, my beloved brethren, God has chosen the poor of this world. They are not poor forever. They're not poor in eternity. God has chosen the poor of this world, this world system considers them lowly. They are poor in this world. No one in this world looks at them and is impressed by them. God has chosen those who are the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Jesus addresses something similar in Mark 10. Jesus answered, surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are our first will be last, and the last first. Drew's actually preaching on this text tonight, so I won't steal any of his thunder, but Jesus is pointing out the fact that in this world is not indicative of what's to come. People who are poor in this world will be very rich in the world to come, and people who are rich in this world will be very poor in the world to come. There, this is given all throughout the Gospels when even the story of Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus, the poor man who was taken to Abraham's bosom, the rich man who was burning in hell and gasping and asking that, that Lazarus be sent to preach to his brothers, asking for one drop of water from, from, from a, a cup of water in his hand. Like, just think about the, the reversal that is. God sees beyond what we see. There, there will be ri- they will be rich in faith, the world is not all there is. This world is not all there is. And the world we live in has kingdoms and it has heirs, but the kingdoms and heirs will be done away with and the meek will inherit the earth, Jesus says. We need to be aware of this. It's often those who are poor who are the most willing to follow the Lord, to believe him, to cast themselves at his feet, to believe in Christ and follow him with their whole heart. It's often the poor. My wife and I, when we got married shortly after we got married. Uh, I, I don't know if all you knew this. Jenna was actually born in the Philippines. Her parents were uh, ministering over there at the time, and she was born there. And so we went back to the Philippines, my wife and I did, and, and, and we went to this camp that her parents served at in Gimaras, and then we, uh, we got to see the, the place there. And I talked to several pastors there, and I talked to several young people. And it, it was shocking to us. We both remarked how, how many of them talked about ministry and talked about the mission field. Like some of these people, to go to the mission field, to go to Indonesia on the mission field was not a hard decision to make. It was like a, a, not a big deal. Like if, I, if I'm living in the Philippines and I, go, and I don't have much and I go to Indonesia and I don't have much there, who cares? But, but for an American person to make a decision to leave an American comfort and culture and go to a place that may not have air conditioning, and that may have funny food, and that it may mean that you have to swat bugs all the time, and you might, you might get a funny cancer fever at, at some point. Like, the, the dangers, we think about these things, and it's like, oh, I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can serve uh, God. Whoa, I, I, I have a lot. I would be giving up a lot. That's the point he's making, is that the poor of this world, it's often God uses them because it's sometimes easier for them to follow Christ than it is for those of us who are rich. And all of you in this room, as I mentioned last week, are rich. We all have so much, so much more than we even thank God for. 
The kingdom is for those who love God, he says. Notice, God has not chosen the poor of this world to be, to be rich. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? This does not mean that every poor person is going to heaven. It says that God uses poor people, for the, and, the, and the promise is for those who love God, to those who trust God. That's the promise, and often it's more poor people than rich people who follow God in this process. It's easier for a poor person to trust Christ than it is for a rich person sometimes. Jesus says as much. Firstly, we saw that um, God sees beyond what we see. Look at number six here. Pride, second part of this issue is that pride will distort our thinking. Pride creates strange priorities that work themselves out in strange ways. He gives a reality check here. James does to the church that's listening to him. He says this pride and selfishness associated with this partiality really messes with our hearts and creates some strange priorities, so much so that some things don't make any sense. In verse 6, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name to which you are called? In, in acknowledging the rich and in dishonoring the poor, you have dishonored the poor man. Why would you dishonor someone God made? Proverbs 7, excuse me, Proverbs 17, 5 says, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. To mock someone is to mock the maker of that person. It's, it's a bad act to dishonor this person. Don't do that. He says, but you've dishonored the poor man. Why? What has he ever done to you? He said, the rich, they do all kinds of stuff to you. They drag you into courts. They blaspheme the name of God. Why are you obsessed with courting the name of a rich person and disregarding someone who's rich in faith? It makes no sense. Your pride has gotten in the way. The rich actually, he says, dishonor you. It's almost like he's saying, let me get this straight, okay? The rich will drag you into court and oppress you. The rich, the rich are the ones who, who are, and why are you trying to curry their favor if they do that? They blaspheme Christ's name. Here he's called the noble name by which you are called. Your identity, your Lord, blaspheming that name. And you're like trying to curry that person's favor. Why are you doing this? The simple point being made here is that when we shift our focus away from pleasing God, instead think of how people in this church can please us, it really messes with our priorities and it, and it, and it creates strange priorities and, and pride will blind us and mess up our thinking. We have to ask ourselves, who are we trying to impress and then why must we confront partiality? He, as, as he finishes out this section, James gives us a, 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 complete exam, or a complete description of why it is that we must address and confront partiality directly. Look with me at verse, one, uh, verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The first thing here is to show partiality is to not love your neighbor. And I say it that way to say that it's not just that you're not loving him, it's the action of not loving. You are showing disdain for your neighbor. If you fulfill the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you're not fulfilling the law. You're committing sin you are convicted by the law. You're a transgressor of the law. Jesus addresses this law, the royal law. In, in, in Matthew 22, Jesus said, this is the greatest law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that poor man is your neighbor. 
And here's the point he's making. You're not just showing extra love to the rich man. It's not like you're saying, well, how can this be bad? Like, I'm loving the rich man more than I'm loving. No, to love someone with partiality is to show disdain. And so here he addresses it directly. To fulfill this law, he says, you have shown partiality, you commit sin. You are a transgressor, and to show partiality is not only just is not only not showing not loving your neighbor, it's a sin against God Himself. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, this is verse 10, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If you don't think partiality is a big deal, if you don't think judging people according to their appearance and how they might benefit you, if you don't think that's a problem, God wants you to know that every sin that you commit is a sin against Him directly. You're sinning against Him. He says, if, if you keep the whole law, and I want you to think about this, if you keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. How in the world does that work? I was thinking about this, and I've, I've thought about this at length. It's interesting. Like, nothing else works like that. Like, for example, if I, if I get caught speeding, I don't go to the court, and he says, okay, you get caught speeding, so I'm also going to charge you with murder, and you're going to go on death row. Whoa, hang on. Well, you broke one law, you're guilty of all of them, so might as well take it right to the top, go get in line. Oh, Whoa, that seems a little bit harsh. How, how can God say, if you break one law, you're guilty of being a transgressor of the whole law? How can he say that? It's interesting. And the answer is right there in your text. If you look with me in verse 11, because he says, for what? For he who said, okay, this is really key, to break the law of God is to sin against God. It's not just to break a rule. You are breaking a commandment against God. You're actually sinning against a person. You're offending God directly. You're a transgressor of the law. It's not like God's up there. He's like, well, he's, he's done all these sins, but he hasn't done these sins, so I'm going to say he's doing okay. When you break a sin, when you break a law, when you sin against God, you are sinning against a person because the issue is not the rule itself necessarily. That's not the big deal. The big deal is that you're sinning against the one who made the rule. For he who said, don't do this, also said this. So if you do that, you've broken the law. You're, you're sinning against a person. You're sinning against an individual. God is a person. He's not a rule book. He's a person. And, and your, your relationship with him, your fellowship with him matters. And so for you to say, well, I just have little sins. No, little sins are sins. That's not a big deal, Pastor. You don't understand. Like, I haven't done any of the big stuff. I've just done the little stuff. You know, like little lies here, little lies there. You don't realize that you're sinning against God, and God cares, and you're a transgressor of the law. Well, I've always been a pretty good person. What do you mean pretty good? Well, I mean, you know, I've never stolen a lot of money. I've never cheated or anything. And I've mostly just, you know, little white lies here or there. No big sins. Friend, you're a sinner. You've broken a law against the God who made the law. You've offended him personally. It's not a rule book. He's a person, and that's the key. He says, for he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you broke the law still. You have broken the law. And it's, it's like someone wants to describe the law like a chain. And the chain, if one link is, broke, if one link is broken in the chain, the, the chain stops to work. It breaks. So it is with the law, friend. You don't have to be the worst sinner in the world. You don't have to have broken all ten commandments. I'll guarantee you, you start actually asking yourself the question. You've probably broken close to ten. 
of the Ten Commandments. You don't have, it's not just that. If you've broken one commandment one time, you're guilty of God's law being broken. You're a transgressor. You have transgressed the law. You deserve punishment for that, and you need mercy. You need God's mercy. You need, you need hope because there's, it's hopeless without… When you fully understand the weight of your sin and the weight of your guilt before God, it is a hopeless feeling. How in the world could I possibly pay for the sin? Well, there's one payment for sin. The payment for sin is death. And so, so that's where we stand. We stand guilty. We stand guilty before him. We must confront partiality because to show partiality is a sin against God. And to show partiality is a, is a, confer- is a betraying of the gospel. The gospel message itself gets betrayed when we do this. Look at verse 12. So speak and so do. That is, do in this way and speak in this way as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Here's the alternative to showing partiality. It's showing love and living out the gospel message through Jesus Christ. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Your life and your choices, choices should reflect those who are judged by the law of liberty. Specifically, this means how you act should reflect the gospel and the gracious gift of Christ. I want you to think about how, how we act when people walk in this door and how that reflects the gospel of Christ. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Christ died for me. I'm a transgressor. Christ died for my sin. He came when we were unlovely, unattractive, unappealing, and we were his enemies. He died for you. He died for your sins when you hated him. He died for you. He did not die because he wanted to gain, but out of the love in his heart, in our expression of accepting those who cannot bring us gain in this world, but loving them despite how much they might drain us is a demonstration of the gospel love of Jesus he had for us. When we show love to the poor person who can give, give us nothing, who can gain us nothing, and nobody's walking around saying, man, you should come to our church. You should see the poor people at our church. <laughs> oh, man, you should get to know some of them poor people. That doesn't happen, right? That's not the context. That's not how our thinking works. Our motivation to love others is grounded in our appreciation and recognition that we are a lot more like the poor man than the rich man. And when Christ accepted us, it was not because we were so lovely. It was not because we were so great. I think it comes from a good place, but I've heard sometimes people say, you know, God looked at you, and He saw you, and he just, he just thought you were so great that He came and died for you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is though we were wretched in sin. Christ came, took on human flesh, lived a life of perfection, and died on the cross so He could take our sin and give us His righteousness so that no work of ours can take the place of His. There's no work of mine which will give me glory, that will give uh, everything is His glory. He says, but mercy triumphs. Judgment without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. We should show mercy because Christ has shown us mercy. And to treat others without mercy means that when the time comes, you will not be shown mercy either. But mercy triumphs. In the end, God's mercy triumphs over judgment, and so it should be with us. The gospel teaches us a few important things. Number one, that Christ became poor so we could become rich. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The poverty there is taking on of sin. And he took on this sin so that we might have his righteousness. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Christ on the cross took on your sin on his shoulders and paid for it, every single one of them, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we stand completely uncondemned before God. There's no additional work needed. It is paid in full when Jesus said, it is finished. The work was paid. The gospel makes it clear. Thirdly, Romans 5 tells us because we have justification with God, what can we have? Peace with him. Therefore, having been justified by faith, not based on your works, not based on some sort of bargain God makes with you. You do really good, and I'll think about saving you. No, he says, I save you by grace through faith. You receive this gift of salvation, and we come to him hopelessly and helplessly. We come to him and say, Lord, I need your help. I need your salvation. He gives it to us as a gift, and by having faith in him, he justifies us. Therefore, we have peace with him. No longer are we enemies. No longer are we opposed to him. Now we are his friends. And then This salvation is given to anyone, no matter your social status, no matter your material wealth. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, here's the promise, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The gospel message is clear. We all have come to Christ as his enemies, and he saved us and redeemed us. We need to see other people with the mercy and the grace that God saw us. Partiality is a dead end. Dead ends, you start down a dead end, and you really think you're making progress. It's a good thing to have those dead end signs. You get lost, you know, you go in those neighborhoods, dead end. Oh, I can't, I have to just turn around and come out. And some of us need to figure out we're on a dead end right now with partiality. And we know what the only solution to a dead end is to turn around and come out. No matter how far you keep going, you're not going to get any further. You've got to recognize if you've been barking up this tree, if you've been seeing church as a way in order to gain for yourself, God says, examine your thinking. So here's our hard examination time. I just have a few points and we'll close. First, what are we trying to do when we gather to worship? Are we really here to worship God because he saved us from our sin, or are you here for a different reason? If we are here for our own benefit, I beg of you, repent of that way of thinking today. Number two, who are we trying to impress? It's clear from the message this morning that God does not want you seeking to impress anyone. You should not be trying to impress anyone. Here, you should be focused on the Lord. You should be focused on His gifts of grace. You should be rejoicing in what God has given you. Your mind should be far away from thinking about what other people can benefit you. Therefore, we must confront sin of partiality in all its forms. And God is not partial. We should reflect His character in how we treat people. We should be the person who says, not I, but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, be Christ, be seen. Not I, but Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I, but Christ. In every look and action. Oh, Lord, save me from my wicked heart. And let me be lost in you. That it's not me, but it's Christ living in me, ministering to other people. Can you say that with your heart today? Let's bow with a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a moment of quiet. 
to deal with the Lord. We've been dealing with a very specific thing that may have touched a nerve in some people's hearts this morning. As, your word, as the Word of God works, His people should respond. And I, I don't know where you are on the spectrum, but I can say all of us need to have a close examination in our heart and say, Lord, um, have I been falling into this trap, this dead end of partiality, where I need to stop where I am, turn around, and get out? Because I've been thinking of people and how they benefit me. I've been denying people. And it doesn't have to be riches. It could be all kinds of things that, sig- that signal to, that, to you that this person is, is somebody uh, I want to be associated with because it makes me feel better about myself, because it makes me feel something or makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm making progress or whatever. And he's quiet. I'm going to give you a moment to deal with the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me of my wrongful thinking about others. Help me, Lord, change my thinking. I repent of my thinking. I change my mind. Today, Lord, I am going to see people as you see me, um, broken but in need of mercy. And, Lord, help me be a merciful person to others. Our Father, it's very easy for us to be self-righteous and to think that we're uh, not in need of, of change. But Father, today I pray you would really open up our hearts to the need to love other people like you love, like you love them, like you love us, like you've loved us. Help us to embrace the gospel message that teaches us that though we were yet sinners, you died for us and we were enemies of the cross, you loved us. And Lord, no matter who comes into our church or who we're associated with, May we love them with our whole heart. We have compassion on those and not see people as how they can benefit us, but see people as souls in need of a Savior. Keep us from foolishness. Keep us from pride. Help us to rebuke this in our own hearts or in our church, wherever we see it. Help Help us be, Lord, the kinds of people who follow you and are not partial to one another. Show the grace of Christ in our lives.